I, this, this uh, morning's message I've called um, asking for a friend um, because we use that phrase a lot of times when uh, we are asking somebody something, but we don't want them to know that it's our question that we're asking. So we say we're asking for a friend, right? But in this instance, uh, what we're talking about today is John the Baptist and him sending some of his disciples to ask a question of Jesus. And that's what we're going to visit about today. Well, some time ago, uh, zoo officials in England were having to compensate people for items that they were losing at the zoo. They were actually being stolen from them. And so they were having to pay them back for this. But the thing that they were curious about was the items that were being stolen. And what was being stolen was eyeglasses. People's eyeglasses were being stolen. So they did an investigation and they found out why. They had placed a small sign up against the cage where the monkeys were. And people were leaning over to read the sign and the monkeys were coming up and grabbing their eyeglasses. And get this, the sign said, warning, these monkeys steal spectacles. So they put a warning sign up that people were leaning in and the monkeys are stealing their glasses. They were having to pay them back. But uh, there are signs all over the place that warn us of trouble up ahead, right? But a lot of times we don't pay attention to them. When we were over in England, um, when you were on the street, when you were at the crosswalk, they had painted on the road, look right. Because there's a lot of visitors to London, right? And they drive on the opposite and opposite side of the road. And so instinctively, we look left to see what's coming. They said, look right, because the traffic's actually coming from that way, and you're going to get flattened if you walk across. But every time we walked to the crosswalk, instinctively, I looked left. Before I set foot in there, there was the warning sign to look right. But I would say that most of the time, people tend to ignore the warning signs, don't we? Last week, we wrapped up chapter 10, where Jesus is pointing out the warning signs to his disciples, saying, if you're going to be a follower of me, if you're going to be a disciple, these are some of the things that you're going to come up against. Don't be surprised. Some of the people are going to receive you, but most of the people are going to reject you. They're going to reject the message of the gospel that you're bringing. They were going to face some pushback along the way, not just on this particular journey, but especially in the future. If you're going to live like the real Jesus... I say real Jesus because there, is a lot of, um, there are a lot of ideas about Jesus out there that are not accurate. If you're going to live like the real Jesus, the world is going to reject you, okay? A Jesus that the world accepts is not the real Jesus. That's not what we see in the scriptures, all right? If we're living it out the way that he says, be prepared for rejection, then he tells them, listen, don't fear all of these things. I know I just told you, I just warned you about all the things that are going to happen, but don't worry about that because since you're citizens of the kingdom, the worst thing that can happen to you is that they take your life, which in the world's perspective would be like, uh, that's everything. You know, I don't want somebody taking my life, but Jesus said, as citizens of the kingdom, this is not the end, quite the opposite. This is the beginning. Okay, this life is the beginning. We are eternal souls that are going to live on after we die. The only question is, where are you going to spend eternity? Are you going to spend it with the Lord, with your creator, or are you going to spend it separated from him in a real place called hell? So he says, don't be fearful of man. Don't be controlled by the fear of man. Be guided instead by a holy fear of God. He's the one that can secure our souls, right? And he's the one that hands out eternal rewards and eternal punishments. So let's have a holy fear of God. And we also talked about the reality that Jesus didn't come here to bring about some utopian society. That's not why he came to earth. But that's what the Jews were hoping for. They thought the Messiah, when he got here, he was going to usher in this 
you know, utopian society where it freed them from their oppressors and established an earthly kingdom where they were not going to have to worry about war or food or sickness or any of that kind of stuff. That was their perception. That was their thought about the Messiah. And Jesus said, the peace that I bring with me, the peace that I bring is relational. Okay, It is to bring restoration between a rebellious humanity and a holy God. That's the peace that I bring. But he also brings a sword, right? a sword that separates, a sword that divides. And that's also relational. Whenever Jesus becomes the central thing, whenever it becomes the main thing in your life or somebody else's life, it's going to create conflict even among family members. Because the kingdom of God runs exactly opposite from the world's systems. That's why there's going to be conflict. Because the unbelieving world, loving the darkness, can't stand the children of light. That's just the way it is. If we are letting our light shine, if we are letting our light shine like a light on a lampstand, that's the illustration that Jesus used. You light a lamp and you put it up on the lampstand so everybody can see it. And if that happens... They're going to reject us. But if you hide your light, okay, the world's not going to have a problem with you. They don't have a problem with Christians. Just listen, practice your Christianity behind closed walls. Don't bring it over here. Don't push it on me, okay? Don't shine your light over here. And Jesus said, if you confess me before men, I will confess you before the Father, right? If you let your light shine, identify with me, I'm going to identify you in front of the Father. But if you deny me and covering up our light, gang, Okay, going out into the world and not identifying with Jesus when we're in the world is a way that we deny him. We need to let our light shine all the time. And he says we must be willing to give up everything for the cause of Christ. If we're not willing to make him the number one thing in our lives, the thing that guides us, the thing that um, is the most foundational, then Jesus says we're not worthy of him. If he can't be the, if the creator of the universe, if our God can't be the central thing in our life, then we're not worthy of him. If we're just consumed with finding our way in the world, then what's going to happen is the world is going to find its way in us. Okay? And when we become consumed with the things of the world, we forfeit the things that matter most, which is spending eternity with our creator. And if we seek him first, Here's the beautiful thing. If you seek him first and his righteousness, his kingdom, all the blessings that he sends your way, you get to enjoy fully, right? You're seeking God. He's your number one thing. All the blessings that he sent, you don't have to feel guilty about that. You can enjoy them to the full, right? But if you're simply seeking the gifts and not the giver, Jesus says, I'm not going to force you to be with me, okay? If all you want is the world and you don't want the creator of the world, I'm not going to force you to be with me. People say, why, did, why does God send people to hell? He doesn't. If you want Jesus now, okay, if you want a relationship with Jesus now, you get to live forever with him in eternity. But if you don't want anything to do with Jesus now, why would you want to be in heaven with him for eternity? Okay, you would be miserable because he's not your Lord. He's not your savior. And Jesus said, if you don't want me now, I'm not, I won't make you be with me in eternity. God's looking for men and women who are willing to be completely identified with him, even if it means rejection by the world, even if the world thinks we're weird, okay? He's looking for people that don't care. They don't give a rip about the world thinking that we're weird. I had a thought for our next t-shirt. I'm super excited about it. We're not going to do it anytime soon. Um, but uh, maybe this summer, we're going to do a t-shirt, and it's just it's going to be real simple. It's just going to have one word across the front, and it's going to say soon. That's it. That should get some questions, right? 
Soon. What? What soon? What do you mean soon? And then when we say, Jesus is coming back soon, man, they're going to look at you like you have lost your mind. It's going to be great. (laughs) It'll be a way for us to shine our light in front of men. We say, he's coming back soon. Well, today we start chapter 11, and we're going to talk about one of the most, you know, completely committed followers of Jesus, and everybody thought he was weird, okay? And that's John the Baptist. So we're going to read our portion of Scripture today. We're going to do chapter 11, verses 1 through 6. When Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of Christ, he sent word by his disciples, and he said to him, Are you the one who is to come, or should we look for another? And Jesus answered them, Go and tell John what you hear and see. The blind receive their sight, and the lame walk. Lepers are cleansed, and the deaf hear, and the dead are raised up. And the poor have the good news preached to them. And blessed is the one who is not offended by me. Okay, before we get to John... I want to read the very first verse again, okay? Notice this. When Jesus had finished instructing the 12 disciples, he went on from there to teach and preach in their cities. I've never seen that before. I've never really recognized that before. But after he sends them out two by two, he goes and teaches in their cities. Now, Matthew could have just said that he went to the surrounding areas and taught, but he specifically tells us that he went to their cities. Last week I said the hardest place to live out Your relationship as a disciple of Jesus Christ is where? In the home, right? In our home. That's the hardest place to live like a committed disciple of Christ because those people know you, okay? So they see you and they're like, what what are you, like holier than thou? Now all of a sudden you're a super saint? They know you, okay? And if you want to know how you're doing as a disciple of Christ, just ask the people who live with you, okay? They'll give it to you straight. He says that's the most difficult place. So he kind of spares them that. He doesn't send them to their cities. He sends them out in all kinds of directions. But he goes and he speaks in their cities. I just think that's really cool. Um, There's an account in Mark 6, and we're also going to get to it in Matthew 13 as well. When Jesus goes back to his hometown, back where he grew up, back to Nazareth, and People back then, they didn't move very far from their hometowns. A lot of times people stayed together as families. And so when Jesus goes back home, um, almost all of the people would have known him. Okay, They either grew up with him or they saw him grow up. And now they know he's a wandering rabbi. He's going all over the place teaching. And they're like, okay, well, you know, why don't you come say something in the synagogue uh, on Saturday? And so he goes to synagogue and he starts teaching. And people are blown away. They are amazed by his wisdom. And they're blown away by uh, the way he's teaching. They can't believe it. And they're super excited about it. And then all of a sudden, they start to think, wait a minute. Isn't this the carpenter's son? Like, isn't his mom and his brothers and sisters, don't they still live here? Who does this guy think he is? And it says that they were offended at him. They got offended at Jesus. They're like, wait a minute, we know you. You come back here to your hometown, you think you're a prophet? And Jesus says this, he says, a prophet is not without honor, except in his hometown and among his relatives and in his own household. And that almost got him killed. So Jesus spares his disciples that. He starts preaching and teaching in their cities. Okay, now we get to John. Verse 2. Now, when John heard in prison about the deeds of the Christ, he sent word by his disciples and said to him, are you the one who is to come or shall we look for another? Fiery John the Baptist. I can't wait to meet John the Baptist. Okay. But John was human. 
He was human, and he has a human moment here, a moment of confusion. Because he had found himself in prison, and he was in prison because he went and confronted King Herod about his adultery. King Herod, now we talked about this before, they didn't like his dad, and they didn't like him because they were puppet kings who had been put in place by Rome. And so what Herod had done is he had gone and he had seduced his brother's wife. And so he had stolen her away, divorced his own wife, and, and John heard about it, and he's like, I'm going to go tell him what's up. I'm going to go call him on the carpet about it. And Herod said, I don't want to listen to it, and put him in the prison. So this would have been a very unusual place for John. We're told that John lived out in the desert. He lived out in the wide open spaces. We're told that he wore camel hair suits, right? That he was, his main diet consisted of grasshoppers and honey, lots of protein. I brought some grasshoppers that we can try with our tacos today. <laughs> but that was who he was. He was an unusual guy. He had been filled with the Holy Spirit inside his mother's womb. Started, he was filled with the Holy Spirit before he even came out, kicking and screaming. And we're told that um, an angel, Gabriel, appeared to his father, Zechariah, when he was in the temple. And he said, you need to raise your son under a Nazarite vow. He was supposed to be different. Now, uh, we only read of three people in the Bible that actually were raised living under a Nazarite vow. The very first one being Samson, right? He was supposed to be raised under a, under a Nazarite vow. Then we have Samuel, right? One of the first prophets in Israel. And then we have John the Baptist. Now, a Nazarite vow meant a couple different things, three very important things. The very first thing meant that you couldn't touch dead bodies. That one seems pretty easy. Don't want to touch any dead bodies anyway. Second one was you couldn't drink any wine. Now, that may not seem like a big deal, but in that culture, wine was very significant. It wasn't just alcohol. It had a lot of significance and meaning to the Jewish people, but you couldn't drink wine. And then thirdly, you couldn't cut your hair. That one would have been really difficult for me, okay? I freak out when my hair starts to touch my ears. I like my hair short. I don't want to grow my hair out. That one would have been hard. So those three things you couldn't do. And so we see these depictions of John looking all crazy, right? He just looks like a madman. Well, think about it. If you're living in the desert, you're wearing animal skins for clothes, and you can't cut your hair, like, you're probably going to look pretty crazy. That's the reason why they depict him that way. He was a prophet. But 400 years had gone by. 400 years had gone by since anybody had heard anything from God. There were no prophets in Israel saying, thus saith the Lord. That is a long time for God to be silent until John the Baptist comes on the scene. He comes on the scene and he's given a mission. This mission was given by Gabriel, by God, right? To Gabriel, relayed to his father, and then sealed by the Holy Spirit. He was the one that was to be the forerunner. He was to prepare people for the arrival of the Messiah. He was the one that was supposed to prepare the people, get them ready. Now, if your message, if your mission is to get people ready for the arrival of the king, you better know who the king is, right? That's kind of an important thing. John knew unreservedly who the king was, and it was Jesus. John was the herald for Jesus. Now, I mean, if you remember the story, John was standing in the Jordan River, right? And he's preaching repentance, and he's dunking people under the water. He's baptizing them for repentance. And Jesus comes walking by, and he shouts out to everybody. He's like, look, there goes the Lamb of God who came to take away the sins of the world. There is your Messiah right there. So he lets everybody know that. I just lost my place. <laughs> he lets everybody know that. But now, as time goes on, as he sits in this dungeon, 
day after day, week after week, month after month, he starts to become perplexed. He starts to become confused. God, what's going on? What's going on? I've been faithful. I've been preparing the people. I've been calling them to repentance. Is this my reward for all of the work that I've done? And he starts to have doubts creep in. He might have been thinking about Jesus' mission statement that he read when he went back to Nazareth out of Isaiah 61. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. And he sent me to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and the opening of the prison to those who are bound, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus, where are you? I thought you were supposed to open the prison doors. Like, here I am. Remember me, John, your cousin? I'm in prison. This is what you're supposed to do. And so he starts meditating on these things. Why do we as believers fall into doubt? Well, the very first reason I think that we're tempted to doubt is when we go through difficult situations. That one seems kind of self-explanatory. But when we go through difficult circumstances... John had been hearing about all of the amazing things that Jesus had been doing, but he hadn't witnessed it firsthand. For all we know, John and Jesus hadn't seen each other since he baptized him in the Jordan River. Now, me personally, I think they probably did. Israel wasn't that big, but it, we don't, we're not told that. And so here John is, rotting away in prison. He's hearing about all the things that Jesus is doing, but he hadn't seen them firsthand. <laughs> And so he gathers his disciples and he's like, listen, I am like 99.9% sure that he's the Messiah, but I'm confused right now. So I need you to go get confirmation. Just go ask him just so we can be sure. And this is a real jarring example for me personally, the most committed follower of Jesus. Okay, the herald is struggling with doubt. But it's an important reminder for you and I to remember that when we face difficult circumstances and we ask the questions, God, where are you? Why did you let this happen to me? When are you going to help me out of this? How long do I have to be here? And it's okay to ask those questions, but when you dwell on them, when you sit in those places, those dark areas, and you just ruminate them on your mind, what the enemy is going to do is he's going to magnify those thoughts in your mind, and he's going to use them to try to undermine our trust in the Father. We are never more vulnerable to the attacks of the enemy than when we're going through times of suffering. That's what makes the book of Job so incredible, honestly. Everything that happened to Job, all of the bad things that he went through, he had questions, okay? He's like, God, I don't understand it. God, I don't like it, but I trust you. I trust you. He asked the questions. That's okay. But ultimately, we don't let those things, those circumstances in our life undermine our trust in the Father and what he does for us. The solution, just as John did, is to take our doubts, take our anxieties, our confusion to Jesus. He had his disciples take that question to Jesus to get answered. G. Campbell Morgan, I mentioned him last week, uh, the great preacher and teacher, uh, was enjoying success as a pastor, as a preacher at 19 years old. 19 years old, this kid's preaching and teaching and people are listening to him. He's gathering a following. But then he began to be attacked by doubts about the Bible because the writings um, and the, um, you know, I don't want to say sermons, but the conversations from some of the scientists and the agnostics of the day, people like Charles Darwin, people like Thomas Huxley, uh, he was reading their books, listening to their debates, and he became more and more confused about the Bible. 
And so what did he did? What he did is he canceled all of his speaking engagements, canceled all of them. And then all of the books that he had been reading, he put them in the closet and he locked the door. And he went to the store and he bought a brand new Bible, brand new Bible. And here's what he said. He said, I'm no longer sure that this is what my father claims it to be, the word of God. But of this, I am sure if it be the word of God, and if I come to it with an unprejudiced and open mind, it will bring assurance to my soul itself. The result, he went and bought the Bible, but he says, that Bible found me. That Bible, the word of God found me. And that new assurance that he had of God's word and his belief beyond a doubt that it was God's word, gave him the motivation for his preaching and teaching throughout the rest of his life. How could Paul write, rejoice in the Lord always, and to be anxious for nothing? How could Paul write, let the peace of God that goes beyond all of our understanding guard your hearts and minds? It's because of the last three words of that verse. The last three words, let the peace of God that goes beyond our understanding guard your heart and mind In Christ Jesus. In Christ Jesus. We take all of our doubts, all of our questions to Jesus. John sent his disciples. And you know what? Jesus was so gracious because he didn't get mad at John. He didn't get frustrated with John. He performed miracles in that moment in front of his disciples and said, go back to John and tell him what you see. Exactly the things that were prophesied that the Messiah was going to do when he got here. And blessed are you if your faith doesn't waver in the midst of difficult circumstances. The second reason that we suffer doubt is incomplete revelation. We just don't see what God's up to. We don't have the whole picture. John, again, he had heard of the things that Jesus was doing. He had even preached some of the things that the Messiah was going to do, but he wasn't seeing them firsthand. He wasn't experiencing it personally. How many times has somebody come up to you and they tell you something and you're like, really? Are you sure? You're sure. Now, we believe the person that's talking to us. You know, we're not saying that they're a liar, but what we are saying is I need further confirmation for that because I'm having a hard time comprehending the words that are coming out of your mouth. Okay? So we do that too. We believe the person, but we want further confirmation. Many Christians struggle with unbelief because they don't know their Bibles. They have an incomplete revelation of who God is. They're asking the questions, which is fine, but they're not reading the book that has all the answers to the questions. The person who's in the Word daily has no reason to doubt, has no reason to doubt, because they're feeding themselves the truth. They're reading the words of God, and when God speaks, doubt vanishes. It disappears. One day, Jesus, after, the, the, on the day that Jesus was resurrected, two of Jesus' followers were walking down this road, and they were going to this small little town called Emmaus. And it was about seven miles outside of Jerusalem. And they're walking along, and they're talking to each other. They're going through the events of the past week about how Jesus had been you know, arrested and turned into the religious leaders and how he had been crucified. And it says that Jesus appeared to them on the road. Okay? just appears to them. And they don't even recognize him, okay? And so he walks up and he's like, hey, you know, what's going on, guys? What are you guys talking about? And they're like, dude, what hole have you been living in? Like, are you not from around here? Don't you know what's been going on? And so they start to explain to Jesus all the things that have been happening the past week. And they're saying, man, we thought he was the one that was going to redeem Israel, but it's been three days since all of this stuff took place. We thought he was the one. 
And then some of these women, some of the women that you were following Jesus, they came to us and they started saying all kinds of crazy things. They said they went to the tomb and then it was empty and that they had talked to some angels and they said that he had risen from the dead. And so we ran to the tomb, but we didn't find him. We didn't see anything. We're having a hard time believing all of this. And this is what Jesus says. He says, Oh, foolish ones and slow of heart to believe all that the prophets have spoken. Was it not necessary that Christ should suffer these things and enter into his glory? And beginning with Moses and all the prophets, he interpreted to them all the scriptures and the things concerning himself. Guys, you've been taught all of this stuff. Why are you doubting? But because they had an incomplete revelation of who Jesus was, they doubted. So what did Jesus do? He took them through the scriptures. Okay? Read your Bibles. Another reason the Christians are plagued by doubt is due to worldly influence. The reason a lot of the disciples and the followers of Jesus started to doubt is because that they had bought in, they had listened to other people's opinions about who the Messiah was supposed to be and what he was supposed to do. They believed that he was going to free them from the Roman oppression, that he was going to establish a physical kingdom here on earth and eliminate all the suffering. They believed all this even though Jesus had told them differently. Jesus told them what was going to happen. That he was going to be betrayed. That he was going to be turned over to the religious leaders. That he was going to be killed for their sake. And they still ignored all of that. They still thought the Messiah was going to be different even though he had told them that. That's why it's so important that we give people a true understanding of the gospel. That we don't make it fluff. That we don't say Jesus is just going to make your life better. Okay, that's not the message of the gospel. Jesus didn't, you know, come to provide a a welfare state. Okay, he didn't come to provide free food, free health care, right? No taxes. That's what they thought that Jesus had come to do. Worldly people look for those things. Okay, that's why people put their trust in governments. But governments aren't going to save us. They're not. Ultimately, they're going to be the demise. Okay, but we put our faith in Jesus. Remember when Jesus fed the 5,000? After he did that, the people were so blown away that they tried to make Jesus king. They wanted to make him king. That's the reason why he sent his disciples across the sea, and that's the reason why he went across as well, because the people were seeking to make him a king. He was performing miracles. He was healing people. He was casting out demons, and they thought, this guy needs to be our king. He needs to lead us because he can set up a kingdom here on earth. But sin was still rampant, right? Injustice was still happening. Political and religious corruption were still the norm. The world just kept spinning around the way that it always had. There wasn't much that they could see besides some cleansed bodies, right? Some healed people. There was no visible kingdom of God. No radical changes to the country that they could see. Even after his resurrection, the disciples, after Jesus appeared to them, they're like, okay, now. Like, now you're going to do it? Now you're going to set up the physical kingdom? Just like, guys, I already told you, that's not what's happening. They were disappointed because they weren't listening to Jesus. Worldly influence. For those who might be struggling with doubt or fear or, you know, anxiety about the Lord, don't listen to what the, what the world has to say about Jesus, okay? Don't listen to those History Channel documentaries, okay? Don't pick up those lifetime magazines, you know, at the checkout counter. Who was Jesus, right? Don't listen to what the world has to say about Jesus. You go find out for yourself. 
This deconstruction culture that's happening right now is resulting in thousands and thousands of young people walking away from church, walking away from the Lord. They're questioning their faith, and there's nothing wrong with asking questions. There's not. We all need to ask questions, but we don't let the world answer those questions. If you take your, answer, your questions to the world, they're more than happy to answer them for you, but it's going to take you farther away from God, not closer to Him. We have to find those answers in the Scriptures. It's okay to ask questions. Jesus called John the greatest man who was ever born, except for him. If the greatest man who had ever been born the herald of Jesus had questions, had doubts. It's okay for us to do that, but we have to take those questions to him. 1 Corinthians 2.14 says, The natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he's not able to understand them because they are not spiritually discerned. Lastly, Christians struggle with doubt due to unmet expectations, unfilled, unfulfilled expectations. John had spoken of the things the Messiah was going to do, but he had yet to see him do some of those things, namely the judgment part, right? Jesus came healing and speaking repentance, you know, calling people to repentance, speaking life and relationship and restoration to people, but he hadn't seen the judgment part yet. And so he began to doubt. It's always been hard for believers uh, to understand why God allows his children to go through so much suffering and to watch ungodly, wicked people of the world experience so much prosperity. It's always been confusing for us. Especially for somebody like John, whose mission and message was for the Messiah, who was going to open up the prison doors, who was going to free people that had been bound, and bring in the year of the Lord's favor. We continually hear people ask, if Christ loves everybody so much, why do children die Why do people starve? Why is disease so rampant in the world? If God is a God of justice, why is there so much injustice and corruption in the world? Why do so many good people have it so bad? And why do so many bad people have it so good? If God is loving and merciful and kind, how can he send people to hell? If God's so powerful and all these false religions are so wicked, why doesn't he just wipe out all of those false systems? When the Lord doesn't fit our preconceived ideas about the way we think that he should be, people start to doubt and they get angry. They get angry at God and sometimes even blasphemous. And even believers fall into these traps. We start to wonder why God isn't performing the way that we feel like he should perform. We have certain expectations of God. Most of the time it's because we think we deserve something from the Lord. Okay, that we deserve something from God. And when we don't see that materialize, we start to doubt. That's why people in Jesus' day were rejecting him. I think that's why ultimately Judas rejected him, because Jesus wasn't the Messiah that he thought he was going to be. And when he realized that, and when doubt crept in, he got angry. And that anger turned into resentment, right? That's what happened with a lot of the people that rejected Jesus, okay? And we see this a lot of times with our friends and family right? Something happens to them. They have the loss of a loved one, or they have the loss of a job. Something doesn't go right for them, and so they get angry with God because of an unmet, unfulfilled expectation. We've had this in our own church. We've had this in our body where something bad has happened, and and the person said, I'm not coming back to church until I'm right with God because I'm angry with him because he did not do something that I wanted him to do. He did not perform the way that I thought that he should perform, so I'm mad at God. 
And sometimes those doubts, if we have a wrong expectation of the Lord, if we don't understand his nature, then we begin to doubt and we can get angry with the Lord and it just drives us further away. That's the way the enemy works in our life to try to create doubt. The enemy is a liar, okay? He has always been a liar. And so anything that is untrue comes from him. It's not from God. We have to go back to the things that we know are true. And when that happens, when people have unfulfilled expectations about the Lord, they have a wrong understanding of who he is. And mostly, I'll say it this way, mostly because they haven't cared enough to find out. If they haven't cared enough to find out what God is like and who he is before bad times hit, then when they do happen, doubt starts to creep in and it leads to anger and it leads to resentment. After John's confusion was relayed to Jesus, he didn't get angry. Jesus didn't get frustrated. It might have saddened him a little bit that his herald, his personal herald, was kind of wondering, who, you know, are you really who we thought you were? But he graciously reassures John of who he is. Jesus knew that a simple yes or no wasn't going to satisfy his cousin, okay? So he presents evidence. He heals people right in front of his disciples and says, go back and share with John what's taking place. And I think... You know, his disciples, John's disciples, would have seen some of the miracles already that Jesus had been doing because John's been in prison for months. And so they would have been checking in on Jesus, seeing what's going on in his ministry so that they could report back to John, here's what's going on. And so not only would this serve as evidence to John, but also a reminder to his disciples, listen, guys, I am the Messiah. You know who I am. This is what's true. Go back and reassure John of what's going on. Despite his circumstances, it had to have been good for John's heart to know that Jesus was reassuring him personally in the midst of his loneliness, in the midst of his confusion. And he'll do that for each and every one of you as well. If you take your questions to Jesus in prayer, if you seek him out in the word, he'll reassure you personally. Paul tells us that the word of God is living and active, that it's like a two-edged sword that cuts right to where we are. It has the ability to, you know, cut between bone and marrow is what it says. It gets right to the root of the issue. And some people, they aren't really fans of going verse by verse to the Bible because it may not touch on cultural issues or it might not touch on personal things that we're encountering in our life. But when we open the Bible up and we're looking for Jesus, it's amazing to me how many times I open it up and it feels like he's speaking right to me, right? If we're looking for him in the scriptures, he's going to reassure us. Does anybody struggle with doubt? Hopefully I'm not the only one, okay, that struggles with doubt. All right, so see, we talk about this today. We open the scriptures, he's talking straight to us. How do we deal with doubt? And I would encourage you guys, pray. Pray that God would reveal himself to you in a brand new way, in a fresh way. And then look for him. Pray it. Read it, look for him. I would encourage you too to have a journal with you when you read through the word. Have a journal next to you so when you read the Bible, you can jot down things that stand out to you. Sometimes it even helps when we write out our prayers. Okay, I've done that before. You write out your prayers because then you can flip back weeks later, months later, years later, and you can see those things and you say, you know what? I see that God was working in my life. I didn't understand it at the time. And this is the thing that was creating so much doubt and anxiety in me, but God answered those things. He was moving in the midst of them. I'd encourage you to do that. And then Jesus says, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. After the miracles, after the encouraging words to John, then comes a little bit of a gentle rebuke to John. And that word offended is sometimes translated stumbled, which comes from the Greek word scandalizo, okay, which you can tell that's where we get our word scandalize or scandal. And it refers to the ensnaring or the entrapping of an animal. 
So when an animal is trapped, it's kind of like a scandal. So we have that in our day, right? People are caught up in a scandal. It says, John, don't fall into the trap that the enemy has laid out to you, out in front of you, to try to get you to doubt, to try to get you to fall into despair. Don't be offended, John, that the kingdom isn't the way everybody expected it to be. And don't be offended that I'm not coming to open up your prison door. I'm following the Father's will, and his, his will is for me to preach repentance and restoration of relationship between a sinful humanity and a holy God. I'm here to lay down my life as a sacrificial lamb. I'm not coming as the conquering lion, not yet. The kingdom isn't as it's going to be, not yet. Right now is the year of the Lord's favor. There will be judgment, but right now is the opportunity for people to be able to accept me as their Savior. A lot of the Jews and most of the religious leaders rejected Jesus. I believe if they had fully embraced Jesus when he came, if they had embraced him as the Messiah, he would have set up his physical kingdom on earth at that point. But they weren't going to do it. They weren't going to do it. And so the message of the gospel, salvation went out to the Gentiles, went out to the rest of the world. Thank God. Thankful for us that we get to be part of the body of Christ. Now, there are some Christian scholars who believe that God is done with the Jewish people because they rejected him, that he's done with them as his chosen people. But that's not true. That's not true. And that's not true. God is not through with the Jewish people because God is a God of covenant. Okay, God is a God of covenant and he keeps his promises. And this makes my faith secure because if God could break his promise, if God could break his covenant with Israel, then he could break his covenant with us as well. You say, well, Nathan, but they were sinning. They like constantly sinned. They were constantly rebelling against the Lord. That's all of us too, gang, okay? We're constantly, that's not our identity, okay? We're no longer identified as just sinners, okay? We're saints. We're saved. We're children of God. We still have a sin problem, okay? Until we get rid of these earthly bodies, we're still going to struggle with sin, but that's not who we are anymore. Paul assures us in 2 Timothy 2.13, if we are faithless, he remains faithful, for he cannot deny himself. Isaiah 49 says this, but Zion, that is Israel, said, the Lord has forsaken me. My Lord has forgotten me. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she have no compassion on the son of her womb? Even these may forget, yet I will not forget. Behold, I have engraved you on the palms of my hand. We've had six kids, okay? Well, I haven't had six kids. Alicia's had six kids. Not one night. There was never a night where a baby was crying that she slept right through it. Okay, dads sleep through that stuff. Moms don't sleep through that stuff. All right? There was never a night where Alicia woke up and was like, is that a baby crying? Oh, that's right. We have Elena. I forgot. Never happened. It's not going to happen to an earthly mom. It's not going to happen to God. He's not going to forget about us. Who did God make a covenant with? Abraham, right? How did it happen? All right, turn with me, Genesis 15, and then we're going to, uh, and then we're going to wrap up here today. This is a lot of scripture, but you guys can take it. All right, I have faith. You guys are changed. You guys sit here and listen to so much preaching and scripture, and I appreciate it. You guys are awesome. Okay, Genesis 15, and then we're done. After these things, the word of the Lord came to Abram in a vision. Fear not, Abram, I am your shield. Your reward shall be very great. But Abram said, O Lord God, what will you give me? For I continue childless, and the heir of my house is Eleazar of Damascus. And Abram said, Behold, you have given me no offspring, and a member of my household will be my heir. 
And behold, the word of the Lord came to him. This man shall not be your heir. Your very own son shall be your heir. And he brought him outside and said, look toward heaven and number the stars if you're able to number them. And he said, so shall your offspring be. And he believed the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. All he did was belief. He believed. And he said to him, I am the Lord who brought you out from Ur of the Chaldeans to give you this land to possess. But he said, O Lord God, how am I to know that I shall possess it? He said, bring me a heifer three years old and a female goat three years old and a ram and a turtle dove and a young pigeon. And he brought him all of these, cut them in half and laid each half over against the other, but he did not cut the birds in half. And when the birds of prey came down on the carcasses, Abram drove them away. And as the sun was going down, a deep sleep fell on Abram. And behold, dreadful and great darkness fell upon him. And the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, and will be servants there, and they will be afflicted four hundred years. But I will bring judgment on the nation that they serve, and afterward they shall come out with great possessions. As for you, you shall go to your fathers in peace. You shall be buried at a good old age. And they shall come back here in the fourth generation, for the iniquity of the Amorites is not yet complete. And when the sun had gone down and it was dark, behold, a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch passed between these pieces. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abram, saying, To your offspring I give this land. The covenant that God made with Abraham did not depend on the performance of Abraham. Okay? Abraham believed. That was it. All he did was believe the word of the Lord and it was counted to him as righteousness. It wasn't based on anything Abram could do. In fact, he wore himself out trying to keep the birds away from the sacrifices because what they would do in that day is they would take all these animals, they would cut them in half, they would lay half of them over on altars over here and half of them on altars over here, and then they would both pass through the middle of those together, symbolizing, if I break this covenant, may what happened to these animals happen to me. Okay, we're serious about this thing. But God walked through by himself. Abram was sleeping. So while he was sleeping, because he wore himself out trying to do something for the Lord, okay, he fell asleep and God walks right through on his own, saying, my covenant is with you. I'm the one who's going to keep this, Abraham. You can count on me. Our God keeps his promises, even when we're confused about what's going on. You guys can come up. John the Baptist went through dark trial that led to his death. Herod actually beheaded John at the request of his adulterous wife. That's what happened to John. But in that dark place, he had doubts. And that gives me a measure of comfort to know that John the Baptist, the greatest, most committed follower of Jesus Christ, had questions, had doubts. And if he wrestled with it, then it's okay if I wrestle with it too. But ultimately, we need to find our answers with Jesus in the Word Okay, because that's the only place where we're going to be assured and find the answers and the confirmation that we need. So don't let difficult circumstances cause you to doubt. We are promised difficult times in this world. Okay, and not just us. Difficult times are common to all men. All right, everybody goes, some people you hear somebody uh, say from time to time, it's kind of, it's tough being a Christian. It's tough not being a Christian. Can you imagine going through this world without the knowledge that this is just the beginning point? It's not the end. And we have a great Savior who is saving us from all of this mess. Going through it without Him would be difficult. Okay, don't let difficult circumstances cause you to doubt. And don't let an incomplete revelation cause you to doubt. Read God's revelation in the Word, okay? And then don't let worldly influence cause you to doubt. Don't let other people's ideas of Christianity 
cause you to doubt. Find out for yourself. That's the only way that you can make your faith your own. You're not saved by somebody else's faith. It has to be your faith. So it's okay to ask questions. That's how we make it our own. But find it in the Lord. And when you are in the Word and when you let that be your foundation and you're not listening to what the world says, then you're going to get reassurance. He will reassure you personally. Just as he did with John. This is a comforting message to me, even though a lot of times it it can be kind of a sad message that uh, doubt creeps in, right? Even with the most faithful um, that we have questions, but questions are okay. They're okay. We just don't ruminate. We just don't sit in those dark places with our thoughts because the enemy will magnify those. He will use those as opportunities to undermine our trust and our belief in the Lord. And, And then we'll become angry and frustrated with God. And then we go to places that take us really far away from Him. But take those Uh, questions to Jesus and have your faith built up. That's another reason why we're to be in community with one another. That's the reason why we're supposed to be together. That's the reason why we're supposed to eat tacos. Okay? So we can build each other up in the faith so that when we go through hard times, you know, I can call Jason and say, life sucks right now. All right? It's hard. I don't like what God's, what's happening, what he's allowing in my life. Could you pray for me? That's what we're supposed to do as brothers and sisters in Christ. But if we don't meet here, if we don't have godly people in our life, then we're out on an island. You're literally in a dungeon by yourself with your thoughts, and that's a dangerous place to be. All right?